Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. I've been thinking a lot lately about how I wish I could control bees telepathically. I think that would be fun. You know, make a swarm of them, form an arrow to point at things. Wouldn't be doing any finger pointing. That's for darn sure. Fingers? That's for chumps. Bees! That's how the pointing's done around here, I'd say. It's also one of the few superpowers that I think I might actually use to fight crime. In general, I'm not a huge fan of dispensing vigilante justice. But if I could control bees, I think the attending puns would be too irresistible for me not to take advantage of. Like, your bees sting a guy a bunch of times, and then you punch him in the face, even though he's probably already passed out from the bee stings, and then you say, rest in bees. That's the main one. But around the holidays, you can mix it up and be like, sleep in heavenly bees, or bees on earth and mercy mild. And the crooks would be like, where does Mercy Mild come into this? You just punched me and I got stung by bees. But they'd only think that. They wouldn't be able to say it because, you know, they're too swollen with bee stings and punches. So yeah, that's mostly what I've been doing. Thinking about how I wish I could throw bees at people for Christmas. Or Hanukkah, I guess. I just don't know as many Hanukkah songs that I could reference. I guess I could do dreidel, 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 I made it out of bees. And, you know, command the bees to make a little top in the air. That seems less specifically useful for crime fighting, but I guess it'd be a pretty good distraction. And you could be like, oh, looks like it came up Gimmel. You win all. The bees! And then you make the bees sting them. Yeah, that'd be pretty good. Okay, so I guess I wish I could throw bees at people for the holidays. Anyway, before we get into the main part of the show, I got some stuff to plug. First of all, I was recently a guest on the Next Wrestling Fan. That's Next spelled NXT. And that episode comes out on December 12th. That's this Saturday if you're listening to this episode as it comes out. I had a really great time talking with Megan Bob and Miles about pro wrestling. So if you want to hear me talk about that, you can. Also, I've mentioned it on here before, but I've been writing for the podcast Garden Plots with Skeletor, and the 24th episode of that, which concludes the first season, comes out on December 15th. So if you've been waiting to check that out, now would be a good time to. You can catch up on the whole first season, and then there might or might not be a Christmas special coming out on the 25th. So, you know, keep an eye open for that. Okay, I think that's pretty much all I got to plug, at least, you know, until the end of the show. So, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Devin Tuhey, and it comes in the form of an epic poem inspired by the Samuel Taylor Coleridge classic, Kubla Khan. In his sanctum did Stephen say, a show of flame ghosts I decree. Well, Hulk, the green Goliath, ran from the team quite pissed off with man down to the whales and sea. 
So twice score members would join and quit, while Kyle and Jack would act like shit. And there would Valkyrie, armed with Dragnus Fang, cause chauvinist piggies to from her wildly flee. And with her sword-side hitting would it clang, showcasing feminist fierce badassery. And what comes next? From the abyss? A monster made of underwear? An unnamed one? Beware, beware! His plot's so long we do not care. To new stories, to more bliss, of closed off and spinners mute, and Hellcat being wry and cute, will lead us to the synopsis. And then there's an author's note which informs us that at this moment, before including much insightful comment on a potential other end for Omega the Unknown, the author was unfortunately called out by an elf with a gun, and when he finally returned, found to his mortification that any memory of that rhyme had passed away like many of Gerber's subplots. Thanks, Devin! Defenders, number 87. September, 1980. Inquest. Written by Ed Hannigan, drawed by Don Perlin, inked by Pablo Marcos, colored by Ben Sean, lettered by Joe Rosen, and edited by Al Milgram and Mary Jo Duffy. Defensive lineup Hellcat, Valkyrie, The Incredible Hulk, Nighthawk, and <sighs> Jack fucking Norris. Previously in the Defenders. About 70 issues ago, the Defenders started palling around with a self-absorbed belligerent sad sack who felt entitled to Valkyrie's affection. No, not Nighthawk. That was more like 75 issues ago. This self-absorbed belligerent sad sack who felt entitled to Valkyrie's affection was Jack fucking Norris, the estranged ex-husband of Barbara Norris whose body was at the time the host for the sorcerously created Scandinavian psyche known as Valkyrie. Jack hung around Steve's sanctum for 25 issues or so, mostly yelling at Val that she was contractually obligated to love him. Eventually, Kyle Richmond, aka Nighthawk, paid the canubially confused creep $30,000 to go away, and after reneging on the deal and getting kidnapped a few times, Jack finally fucked off to go become the world's most incompetent super spy. Hooray! In more recent Defenders news, the government began investigating Kyle's company, Richmond Enterprises, for gross financial malfeasance, and issued a court order that until the investigation was complete, the affluent avian aficionado was banned from putting on his fancy bird suit and punching crime. Hooray! Looking into Nighthawk's shady financial history wasn't the only thing the government was up to either. An unnamed shadowy agency offered a conditional pardon to Mutant Force, a reductively named C-minus squadron of supervillains who had recently tangled with our titular heroes. Oh, and also the Hulk leapt off and angrily quit the Defenders and demanded that he be left alone. Gadzooks! What was the condition which Mutant Force's pardon was contingent on? Why did the Hulk leap off angrily into the sunset this time? And, assuming that his inclusion in this section means that Jack fucking Norris is back, has the matrimonially-minded meathead changed his ways? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so they had to go work for the agency which pardoned them? Partly because the Black Panther punched him in the face for no reason, but mostly because he's the Hulk and that's just what he does. And he yells angrily that no one will listen to him then gets knocked unconscious, so no, I'd say his behavior is still pretty much on brand. 
unaware that they are being watched by an unnamed shadowy government agency, Hellcat and Valkyrie fly around and look for the Hulk. Val is riding on her Pegasus Aragorn, while Patsy zooms around in a fancy Wakandan hover car, which I guess Black Panther must have gifted to her after the last issue. Man, those kitty cat cosplaying crime fighters really stick together. The airborne adventurers swing by Kyle's recently incinerated riding academy, which they had once called home, and reminisce for a minute. After a quick scan of the area, they determine that either the Hulk isn't there, or he's gotten uncharacteristically good at hiding in the last few days. They're about to leave when Hellcat spots the representatives of the unnamed shadowy government agency that's been spying on them. I think from now on I'm just going to call it the USGA, but I want to make it clear that when I say that, I mean unnamed shadowy government agency, and not the United States Golfing Association. Although, seeing as the agency is as yet unnamed, we can't rule out that they are in fact the United States Golfing Association. But it seems pretty unlikely. Anyway, moving with an unexpected speed, the heroes sprint after the USGA car. When the agents inside see that their cover is blown, the probably not golfers try to zoom away, but Patsy's able to use her cat-claw grappling hook thingies to stop the vehicle. Unfortunately, the USGA has trained its non-golfers well. One of the men, an Agent Lemon according to his partner's outburst, shoots a flare pistol which blinds our unsuspecting heroes, while the other agent slams on the gas, running over a startled Aragorn who had landed in front of the car. Damn it, probably not, golfers! The unscrupulous surveillance team drives off, leaving Hellcat and Valkyrie to hurry their unlucky equine pal to the veterinarian hospital, where he is by now no doubt very well known to the staff. At this point, we learn that the narrative we have seen thus far, and indeed the narrative framework for the entire issue, is being presented as testimony in a secret tribunal being conducted by the USGA. When the probably not golfer who has been testifying finishes relating what he and Agent Lemon learned from following Hellcat and Valkyrie, namely that they hate being followed around and that flying horses hate being run over, his boss is like, Cool. But then you followed the Hulk around, too, right? How'd that go? The probably not golfer is like, Um, not great. We followed the big green guy around in a helicopter for a while. He went to New Jersey and then fell asleep under a highway overpass. Once he was passed out, he turned into a skinny little guy wearing purple unintentional jorts. We figured the National Guard could take it from there, so we turned things over to Colonel Lear and his men. I'm going to let him finish the testimony to emphasize the fact that we weren't the ones who screwed this up. Uh, Colonel? Colonel Lear takes over the testimony at this point, either oblivious or resigned to the fact that he and his men are being thrown under the bus. Apparently the plan was to sneak up on a slumbering Bruce Banner and affix a mask to his face that dispensed an anesthetizing gas. Once Banner had been dosed with enough gas to ensure that he wouldn't wake up in transit, he'd be tied to a helicopter and flown away. Seems straightforward enough. Only things didn't go according to plan. See, Private Perkins, who was in charge of hooking Bruce up to the knockout gas, was understandably nervous. He tripped and fell into the snoozing physicist, who awoke to find himself surrounded by army men. This didn't exactly have a soporific effect on the surprise scientist, and he promptly hulked out. Uh-oh. One of the army guys tied a rope to Hulk's leg and signaled the helicopter to drag him away. That worked about as well as you'd expect. 
The enraged Emerald Avenger smashed the shit out of the helicopter and any other military equipment he could get his hands on, which it turns out was quite a bit of military equipment. The colonel ends his testimony, and the guy running the tribunal or whatever is like, Well, that sounds like a colossal fuck-up. Hey, speaking of colossal fuck-ups, let's hear what Jack fucking Norris has to say. Jack, what can you tell us about the Defenders? Jack fucking Norris comes out and tries to swear himself in, but the head USGA guy tells him to knock off that shit because this isn't a trial. So, Jack is like, um, it's pretty much like Hub said in the previously in the Defenders bit. I'm the estranged husband of Barbara Norris, whose body used to be the host of the sorcerously created entity known as Valkyrie. I hung out with the Defenders and yelled, Where's my wife? a lot. I'd get kidnapped and knocked unconscious on a fairly regular basis, and they'd rescue me and I'd act resentful and yell at them some more. It was pretty cool. After a while, they got annoyed and paid me to go away. Then I got kidnapped a couple more times, and decided to join S.H.I.E.L.D. and become the world's worst spy. Jack is about to explain how terrible he is at his new job, but unfortunately the USGA guy cuts him off and is like, Ugh, boring. Let's listen to some audio we taped from Kyle Richmond's heavily bugged penthouse apartment where Valkyrie and Hellcat have been staying. A tech wheels out an AV cart and everybody sits around and listens to Val and Patsy chat about their day. Then Kyle comes in and whines about how unfair it is that just because he's suspected of being a criminal, he isn't allowed to get dressed up in a fancy bird suit and randomly beat the shit out of people he suspects are criminals. After a few minutes, Patsy interrupts Kyle's whining, because she just heard a news report that the Hulk is fighting some military forces in New Jersey. She and Valkyrie hop in the hover car and zoom off to see if they can intervene on their volatile green buddy's behalf. The main USGA, but probably not the golf one, guy, is unimpressed with the hero's decision-making process. He calls the next witness for this unsanctioned, off-the-record, non-trial. Retired Air Force Colonel Buzz Baxter takes the non-stand. Okay, so two important facts about Buzz. One, he is Patsy Walker's ex-husband, and B, he's a real asshole. Both these facts are immediately evident from his testimony. He tells the non-court that he and Patsy were childhood sweethearts who got married right out of high school. Then he went off to fight in Vietnam. When he came back, he was an even bigger jerk than when he left, so Patsy divorced him and started hanging out with the Avengers. That pissed Buzz off, so he started working for an evil company called the Brand Corporation, which was, among other things, trying to kill the Avengers for some reason. Buzz and Patsy clashed, and during their conflict, she used the fancy cat suit she had started wearing to claw his face up real good. Hooray! It's pretty clear that even the jerk in charge of the almost certainly not golf-related USGA thinks that Buzz is an asshole. He cuts the embittered ex-husband off and thanks him for his testimony. Buzz is like, Aw, come on! I got way more irrelevant hearsay! But the USGA guy is like, Yeah, well, good for you. Jack fucking Norris starts to pipe up about how unfair it is that the government is persecuting helpless violent vigilantes, but the USGA guy is like, Who said we were part of the government? So, since they might not be government-affiliated, I guess the unnamed shadowy government agency would just be the USA. But for some reason calling them the USA to emphasize that they might not be affiliated with the United States government feels a little counterintuitive, 
So I think from now on, I'm just going to refer to the probably not golf-related USGA as the jerkwads. When the jerkwad in charge tells Jack that the USGA is just a USA, Jack is all like, what? The main jerkwad is like, okay, sick of this. Jack fucking Norris, fall asleep. So Jack fucking Norris falls asleep. Huh. Well, that's handy. Once Jack fucking Norris is obediently snoozing it up, the Grand Jerkwad calls in the next witnesses. It's Mutant Force. Hi, Mutant Force. In case you're not familiar, Mutant Force is a force made up of mutants. Hence its name. Its membership consists of a snake man named Slither, a strong guy who can also control gravity named Lifter, a little guy with huge eyeballs named Peeper, aww, a fire-shooting guy named Scorcher, and an electricity-generating guy named Shocker, but not that Shocker, who has lobster claws for hands, because why the fuck not? Mutant Force enters the maybe-not-a-courtroom and takes the possibly-not-a-stand. Shocker introduces himself and his teammates and mentions that while they used to be supervillains, they are now working for the government in some unspecified capacity. Government work appears to agree with Peepers. The previously potato-shaped looky-loo has slumped down quite a bit. In fact, due to his unique physiology, it's now almost literally the case that his eyes are bigger than his stomach. Anyway, Shocker testifies that a few days ago the government sent he and the rest of Mutant Force over to New Jersey because some idiot had riled up the Hulk, and consequently, the bounding behemoth was having one of his signature rampages right outside the newly constructed giant stadium in East Rutherford. Mutant Force parachuted in, and the Hulk started smashing the crud out of them. Bunch of tanks and helicopters showed up as reinforcements, so the Hulk jumped to the roof of the stadium to get away from everyone. That's when Valkyrie and Hellcat showed up in their fancy new hover car. But the Hulk didn't recognize the vehicle, so he batted it out of the sky. Oops. This gave Mutant Force the opening they were looking for. Scorcher used his burninating abilities to ignite the air around the Hulk's head. This sucked all of the oxygen from the area and created a vacuum. Unable to breathe, the Green Goliath passed out and tumbled from the top of the arena, transforming into Bruce Banner mid-air. Oh no! Fortunately, Hellcat managed to right the hover car and make their way back to the roof. While Val held Mutant Force at bay with her magic sword, Hellcat used her grappling hook cat claw thingy to snatch an unconscious Bruce Banner from the air. Then they loaded the tuckered out gamma radiologist into their battered hover car and vamoosed back to the city. Hooray! Mutant Force and the Jerkwads all agree that what Val and Patsy did was just terrible. The main Jerkwad assures all those in attendance that the defenders will be punished severely for their delinquent behavior. The lone dissenting voice belongs to a groggy but awakened Jack fucking Norris. Jack fucking Norris is like, Where's my wife? Sorry, force of habit. What, what I meant by that was, I think you're being way too harsh on the defenders. I mean, sure, they've caused millions of dollars worth of property damage and probably killed a few civilians, but since when are those crimes? The jerkwad in chief is like, God, you suck. Look, if you feel like we're being that unfair, why don't you just leave? Jack fucking Norris is like, Fine! I will! And storms out the door. As soon as he's outside, the spouse-stalking sap remembers his contrarian nature and is like, Wait! If they want me to leave, then I should probably go back in there! 
But when he tries to re-enter, Jack finds that the door has disappeared. An elderly woman shakes her head sadly and says, An unofficial tribunal of a shadowy organization with questionable ties to the U.S. government? Why, there hasn't been an unofficial tribunal of a shadowy organization with questionable ties to the U.S. government here in 30 years. Then she disappears in a puff of smoke. Okay, there's no elderly lady, but you get the idea. Shaking his stupid, stupid head, Jack fucking Norris rushes downtown to find the defenders and warn them about what he's heard today. To be continued. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty good. How are you? I'm doing all right. I have a new favorite apple, so that's exciting. Is it that Honey Crisp hybrid? It is called the Cosmic Crisp, and it blows my fucking mind. Wow, that's a powerful apple. It really is. I gotta be clear, this is my favorite eating apple. I haven't done any baking with it yet, and I suspect it might not fare as well in that category. But it is a tasty enough apple that it might surpass the Satsuma as my favorite fruit. Wow. You gotta get to bacon, my friend. Well, like I said, one of the things that I like about it so much is it has a very crisp texture, and I feel like that might not lend itself as well to baking. But just as an overall fruit, it kicks the crap out of the honey crisp. Those are serious words. I know. As you can tell, I lead a very exciting life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, well, speaking of excitement, Inquest. Yeah! So, Corey, what did you think of this comic book? Well, my first thought when I saw the title was, oh, shit, we're in for another, like, series of titles that begin with I <laughs> that just don't resolve forever. And then I was like, no, 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 that was that was the Teen Titans. It'll be fine. Those are ours, I guess, but... Yeah, as a prefix, it does have potential, though, so I can see where you could get a number of those titles out of it if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. My first thought about the title Inquest was that it sounds like it's like a super bureaucratic D&D &D game, kind of. <laughs> like a role-playing, like, audit-type game? <laughs> exactly. Oh, fun. Roll for deductions! Ugh. I really don't enjoy that whole process, figuring out tax things. Really? That's weird. I feel like there are some people who are kind of into it. Really? Yeah. I don't know any, <laughs> but <they're>, <laughs> they gotta be out there. A lot of large numbers, there probably are. Mm -hmm. I will say I loved the cover of this issue. I thought it is super badass looking, and I think that is part of where it's got that like D&D &D vibe to it. And it has the word quest right in the title. But then the inquest thing just sounds vaguely bureaucratic to me. But it is really cool looking. Yeah, I love it. Valkyrie's got a kind of original Star Wars Luke Skywalker pose going, holding the sword up. Mm -hmm. Hulk looks like he's dancing, I feel like. <laughs> yeah, Hellcat looks like she's doing the thing where she's like, posing looking fierce like making a claw at the camera uh -huh. like she's basically saying roar yeah very staged the whole thing 
And then in the background, you have these glowing red eyes and very distinct eyebrows of someone who apparently has it in for the Defenders. And those eyebrows are over the top. It was like, wait, are they being spied on by that human who appears in the interstitial bits at the beginning and end of Fraggle Rock? Like, it is somebody with distinct eyebrows. Yes, very much. Maybe it is. We'll never know. Yeah, so it's probably either that guy uh, or just, yeah, judging from the eyebrows, it's him or the guy who adopted Punky Brewster. Gosh, I saw so many episodes of that as a kid, and I have no recollection of the guy who adopted her. Hmm. That's all, like, fuzzed out in my memory. I know I saw episodes of it. The only episode I can ever remember is the one that seems like a fever dream where they're in that cave and the kid turns into a tree made out of teeth or something. I know what you're talking about because I think it's come up at least once on this podcast before. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure somebody's played Tighten Up the Defense Bingo and just checked that off on it. (laughs) Oh, man. That could be a Patreon thing we could release. Ooh. Tighten up the defense bingo. Yeah, if you want to drop a bingo card, I think that'd be pretty fun. Yeah. So cover and title aside, what did you think of this issue? You know, I enjoyed it. I I wouldn't say against my better judgment, but I I was surprised I enjoyed it because it has this kind of overly procedural feel. Like a lot of it takes place in this kind of pseudo courtroom or trial inquest setting. Mm-hmm. And it's it's very dense with dialogue, which I feel like I could kind of use a break from. That said, we got to see Jack Norris called a bunch of names, so that was fun. Ugh. Yeah, I was not stoked to see him back again, but I had an overall pretty similar reaction to the issue that you did. I was really surprised at how much I liked it. I thought it was a good issue. I know what you mean about the format, and it seems like it would be tiresome if we get a whole story arc that this is the format for. But as a one-off and an issue that sets up a story, I think it was really effective and it worked really well, and I dug it. Yeah, same here. I'm curious to find out what happens next. What's up with these these mystery pseudo-government people that have the power of napping at a word from a distance action well i mean i think we all have the power of napping at a word they have the power to induce naps in a, in jack norris at least and that was something i did enjoy about it was seeing jack norris be knocked out again which was kind of his go-to move when he was appearing regularly in the defenders mm-hmm. yeah this government agency i mean i think we're supposed to dislike and distrust them I think it speaks to the author Ed Hannigan's general anti-government stance. He is on the record as being a libertarian, and I think that really comes through in his portrayal of government agencies in this book. If for no other reason they're like inherently untrustworthy in that when they want fair and unbiased information about the Defenders, the first people they go to are their estranged ex-husbands. Man, yeah. I, do you know the backstory with with Buzz um, Baxter and Patsy? He seems like a real piece of garbage, that guy. He is a real piece of garbage. Patsy and his backstory is incredibly convoluted, 
and there's a ton of retcons. A very big one is upcoming, so I don't want to spoil it too much because we'll get to it in a couple of issues. But basically, Patsy Walker and Buzz first appeared in the 40s in an Archie-like romance humor comic book that was not part of the Marvel superhero universe. Then they got folded into that universe, and when they did, they took it from... Okay, so they had all of these Archie-like adventures, and then when they graduated high school, they were childhood sweethearts, and they got married. And then going on from that point, Buzz went to Vietnam, and his experiences there hardened him, but he was always kind of a jerk, and now he's a total fucking jerk. He worked for the Brand Corporation and hated the Beast, and Patsy became friends with the Beast and joined the Avengers, and Buzz tried to murder them all, and she scratched his face. Mm, okay. That's a very pared-down version of it. He is a very conservative military man and has often acted as a foil for the Avengers. I guess often being once, but <laughs> it happens again later on. So on page... Gosh, I'm not really sure what page it is. Maybe around page 11, the one where he's giving the backstory and it shows her like getting ready to scratch his eyes out mm -hmm. in my copy she's got this really weird like it looks like like a metal headband with like the part of a tire that you attach the hose to to fill it up sticking out of the middle with like a tube yeah. hanging off of it what's do you know what that's about uh, she was hooked up to some medical equipment. This is from a storyline that took place in the Avengers, I think, 145, 146, something like that. She was tied up, and I think that is some medical equipment that she escaped from. It is a very weird, distinct look that makes it look like, I don't know, maybe a stethoscope broke off, or she's dressed up as a particularly flaccid unicorn. Yeah, it is a bizarre look, and it's kind of apropos of nothing so i'm glad you were able to fill me in on that yeah i'm sure that is a reference to a specific panel and incident the storyline took place in like 144 through like 149 so somewhere in there i'm sure there was a panel that looked like that it did seem oddly specific for them to include that in there but most of this issue, or at least a significant part of this issue, is just going over previous backstory and tying things together in a way that really does seem like it should be boring, but for whatever reason, it, it worked. Mm -hmm. Oh, and just a note, too, on this inquest thing. I mean, despite the anti-government angle, there, there is a part where the sort of judge guy basically says that the tribunal is not connected to the government. Yeah. Which is weird. They're a shadowy organization. He doesn't say they're not connected to the government. He just says, oh, we never said this was a government agency or a courtroom or whatever. But I'm pretty sure it is. Hmm. Yeah, I do like the way that the, the judge guy gives Kyle what for right before he makes him take a nap. Well, it's an understandable mistake, but you're mixing up your uh, uh, you're Kyle. mixing up your assholes there. Yeah, sorry, Norris. Yeah. As I said, understandable mistake. And when you see Kyle in his civilian duds and Jack Norris in his civilian duds, it's super easy to mix them up. Mm -hmm. They're just generic brown haired white dudes. I'm just still surprised that they didn't wind up being buddies. 
Are you though? I feel like it's narcissism of small differences there. They're <laughs> they're both whiny and feel entitled to Valkyrie's affections and completely incompetent. I, I can see them each struggling to be the alpha nondescript white dude. Mm. Yeah, I guess so. It's like the two same poles of the magnet are just gonna push each other apart. Mm-hmm. I was honestly surprised to see Jack Norris describe Kyle as favorably as he did to the government board. Mm-hmm. I think my favorite part of the government inquest part of the comic book, though, is when Mutant Force reappears, and it's just cute that they do everything together. Yeah, yeah, they're a real team. Like, they've clearly been to some, like, team-building workshop exercises. They must have done trust falls or something. Although that must have been difficult for the Shocker with his lobster claws. Mm-hmm. That is the most ridiculous, inexplicable thing, I think, out of <laughs> maybe any villain other than the, like, porcupine guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty good. But yeah, I like I like that he's the spokesperson for the group. And yeah, the government goes to introduce one of them he's like all right we have the next witness and he's like no 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 witnesses we do everything together and they all pile into the room it is weird to see the difference in peepers like has dude that dude been jazzercising or something he's like slimmed down and his posture's way better still a little fellow with a huge head and enormous eyeballs but totally different looking Mm -hmm. yeah i feel like he i don't know maybe saw himself in some past issues and was like "Oof, man the page has like five pounds i gotta get to the gym (laughs) stop eating all of these grapes all the time (laughs) i was honestly wondering if maybe they had to replace him with a different peepers because it just it looks like a completely different dude and specifically, it looked to me like a grown-up version of Charlie Brown. Hmm. So, I don't know. Maybe I mean, maybe there was just... He saw an opening for uh, a kind of weird-shaped, bald-headed guy and was just like, look, I want to keep working in comics. I guess Charlie Brown wasn't hard up for cash in the, set in the early 80s. He was working pretty consistently at that point. But, you know, doesn't hurt to diversify. Mm-hmm. It's good, um, good business advice. <laughs> Yeah. I'll tell you who I feel bad for in this issue. Aragorn. That horse cannot catch a fucking break. I know. Poor guy. Sheesh. Is back to the hospital with him. Yep. More ketamine for that guy. (laughs) I wonder if the vets are, like, looking at Val, like, um, is that what this is all about? (laughs) (laughs) Is this like a Munchausen type thing? Or are you trying to get at his prescriptions? Because first he got tangled up in a net hammock and shot with a laser. Then he got blown up by the army. A weird unicorn looking dude with a hodgepodge of patchwork menagerie creatures. (laughs) Sliced him up and put him in the hospital. What is going on with this dude? Yeah, he really can't catch a break. It would be reasonable to assume that Val is just tripping her face off every month or something, getting high on the supply. Yeah, I mean, if I were an employee of the hospital, 
I would call protective services to at least take a closer look at this situation mm -hmm. because yeah, she just parked Aragorn right in front of the government car that they're trying to stop. And the government guys just drove right over him. Yeah. Hefty harsh fucking dicks. Yeah. The whole government agency thing. And I know where it's totally the way that it, that it's portrayed and how we're supposed to feel, but man, what a bunch of jerks. Yeah. I, I do not like those guys, although I did appreciate that they seem to not really believe Buzz Baxter's bullshit either, mm -hmm. like in a way that he didn't pick up on, because when they're asking him questions, he finishes his testimony and the guy's like, and I'm sure that's exactly what you believe happened, Mr. Baxter. Yeah. And he's like, thank you. Like, God, you're so fucking dumb. And his last parting shot is... Like, Patsy never visits her sick mom. <laughs> and the judge is like, yeah, okay, next. <laughs> yeah, that is not the first time we have heard Patsy's sick mom referenced and Patsy having a difficult relationship with her mother. So I would keep an eye out for more of that shit in the future. Mm, noted. I think the thing that maybe pissed me off most that the government agency did, though, is not even running over Aragorn. Not abusing the Hulk the way that they did, but the fact that they cut off Jack Norris just when he was about to talk about the part where he was completely inept as a government agent. I was just like, no, this is the only part of him talking that I want to hear. I agree, yeah. I was just starting to get good, but we don't get to hear how badly he screwed up at S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> so unfair. Mm -hmm. I'm going to find that passage. Just give me a second. They did a pretty amazing job of packing in, like, the whole Scorpio story into, like, three panels. Yeah, I was impressed and, frankly, a, a little bit jealous. I wish I'd been able to do that when I was writing the synopsis for it. Mm. Okay. In the aftermath, I met the real Fury, and he offered me a job working for S.H.I.E.L.D. I jumped at the chance. I wanted to be a hotshot secret agent, but... And then they cut him off! Yep. I... I... I what, what was he? But... Then I sat in some pudding and fell off a cliff and, you know, like, <laughs> what exactly did he do? <laughs> oh my god, he is such the worst. But I kept yelling, where's my wife, when I was supposed to be an undercover agent. Like, what way did he screw up? Because you know he screwed up big because he would be the worst secret agent. And that's the only Jack Norris that I want to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would read that comic. We also learn in this issue that Patsy and Valkyrie have been crashing at Kyle's penthouse instead of staying at the Sanctum Sanctimonious. Why do you think that is? Oh, gosh. I hadn't put thought into why that is. I just sort of took it at a face value. So I guess last time, Steve seemed pretty bugged out that there were so many people in his house. Maybe he just kicked everybody out. Yeah, maybe he was just trying to get them to always go to the movies and have the Hulk freak out, and they were sick of that. The other possible explanation, and the one that I find more disappointing but maybe seems more likely, is that, for whatever reason, the Defenders seem to have rescinded their offer to have Clea join the team, and maybe it was just awkward hanging out at the Sanctum. Mm. Because after... I think literally almost a year of issues worth of comic books of her being like, 
Oh, well, the defenders ask me to join. I'm bored all the time, and I think I'd be a really good defender. And her almost joining, they finally ask her to join, and then she just doesn't appear in like three issues in a row. I assume she's not on the team at this point, which is super disappointing, but it's just another like dropped plot thread, like Patsy's fucking shadow cloak, where it's like, oh, this seemed like it was going somewhere, and then nope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who knows? Like many things, it'll probably come up again in a few dozens of issues from now. Yeah, I don't know. I just want Clea to be a fucking defender. Yeah, it really seemed like that was the way things were headed, which was encouraging. But nope. I'm not sure if it was the case in your copy as well, but did you notice any coloration issues in this? I got a blue Hulk. Did you get a blue Hulk? I got a blue Hulk for a couple of pages. Yeah, on page five, the Hulk is blue and the sky is pink in a way that makes me assume that's a printing error rather than a mistake that the actual colorist made. And then a few pages later, actually quite a few pages later, but on page 19, there's one panel in which the Hulk is red and Slither, who is wrapped around his head, is orange. There's just a couple of weird things like that. And then there's a more subtle one that may be an issue of shading, but I have maybe a theory as to why there are some incongruities with the coloring on this. The one that may be a matter of shading, it's on page 11, and it is when Kyle is checking in on Valkyrie and Patsy. It really looks like Patsy is nude, doesn't it? Just wearing blue gloves? Yep, it it does. Because she's supposed to have her yellow jumpsuit on and be holding her yellow jumpsuit, but the Mm -hmm. jumpsuit she's holding is yellow, but her skin is kind of more, I don't know, orangey. Yeah, and in the panel beforehand, she's definitely wearing her suit and holding up the old suit, and she's not acting as though she's nude. She's not, like, trying to cover herself up or anything. So my thinking is these panels are presented from audio tapes that the government is listening to in court, and so the scene is, I think, supposed to be a recreation of what they think is happening based on the audio. So maybe the government's just like, and probably she's naked there because these defenders are a bunch of degenerates. Mm. Yeah, it does have this real, like, kind of McCarthyist morality. Yeah, like, ah, them and their libertine ways. Mm-hmm. So that would explain that panel, but for the fact that there are as many coloring incongruities as there seem to be, I know the issue is credited to Ben Sean as the colorist, but I think perhaps at various points they were trying out a new colorist, and there's a clue to that in one of the early sound effects we see in this issue. Yeah? Yeah. On page three, when... Aragorn gets hit by the government's super undercover government-looking car. It makes the noise tonk. T-H-O-M-K. Corey, I think they were trying out Thomas Kincaid, painter of light, as their temporary colorist, and he took some liberties with their color palettes. Hmm. Yeah, maybe he was playing like, like, oh, the Hulk feels blue. So he's blue. Or exactly. the Hulk is angry, so he's red. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think that was probably what was going on. Almost certainly, Thomas Kincaid, painter of light, was trying out for a job as a colorist, and it didn't end up working out, probably because he kept going around the Marvel office pissing on things, which is apparently a thing that Thomas Kincaid did. Um, I, I didn't, I, like, just whatever he felt needed peeing on? <laughs> yeah, kind of. I get the impression it was kind of like Jack Nicholson in the movie Wolf, where it's like a territorial thing, but he was at least once in legal trouble for, and this is late on in his career after he was a famous person, uh, he was apparently a really mean drunk and also used to just territorially pee on things in a Disney hotel in Anaheim. He got in a great deal of trouble for peeing on a statue of Winnie the Pooh <laughs> and saying, this one's for you, Walt. Oh my gosh. Wow. So I can see where a volatile personality like that might not have fit in in uh, Jim Shooter's Marvel Comics in 1980. So my assumption, uh, and I think it's probably pretty safe to assume, that the coloration issues in this comic book were the result of Thomas Kincaid painter of light, briefly being employed by Marvel, but then being fired for peeing on things he ought not to have peed on. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty wild theory, but... No, it's Occam's razor, Corey. It's, it's the simplest solution, so uh -huh. it's, it's almost certainly the truest one. All right. Wow. So much art and history wrapped up in these pages. Yeah, that's why we get those uh, government education grants. Um, what? Uh, never mind. <laughs> well, shit. I know there's a lot more to this comic that we have to cover, but I honestly think most of the rest of it is going to come up in the minutiae. Corey, are you ready to move on to the minutiae? Was there anything else you wanted to bring up? Um, yeah, I think we can jump right in and everything else will, uh, will just come up then. Sounds good. Especially because, and this is uh, creating a little anticipation, so you stick around after the Minutia song. I'm sure there's a lot of listeners who just, like, wait until the Minutia song comes up, and after they hear Rick's dulcet tones, they're just like, well, podcast peaked there, and turn it off. But here's a reason you might not want to do that, listener. We've got a new Minutia category we're going to be trying out this week. So stay tuned for that. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, mm -hmm. it seems as though every week we've been having an increasing amount of difficulty coming up with a sucker, a character who has to act out of character in a way that furthers the plot. And it's not that I think the writing has necessarily improved that much. It's just we're on issue 87 of the series. We've spent so much time with the characters. They've all behaved in a myriad of different ways. So it's harder to pick out a single thing that seems out of character. Yep. Has been uh, increasingly difficult to find a good sucker. So I think going forward, if somebody stands out as a sucker, we will definitely bring that up. But... I have an idea for a new category. Last week in the New Teen Titans issue that we covered, there was a piece of phrasing that just seemed like the perfect band name. 
polychromatic rainbow of dissent. And reading this issue, I was again struck by what seems like a really good band name. So, I am proposing a new minutia segment called Battle of the Band Names. We find a piece of dialogue or captioning that seems like it would be a really good band name. We pick the best one from the issue, and then we put it against the best one from the previous issue. So last week's was Polychromatic Rainbow of Descent. Were you able to find a band name in this comic book that you would feel comfortable putting up against Polychromatic Rainbow of Descent? I've got one, mm. and then we can uh, figure out which one we think might make the cut. Oh, geez. Okay. So when you gave me the wireframes for this before, I didn't get that it was going to compete against against that. Like, that's a that's a pretty high bar. I would have looked a little harder if I had known <laughs> that was the case. That said, yeah, why not? I, I had a couple. I'd say my runner-up is, like, a, one of those one-word name bands with the exclamation point after it, mm. which is Klapow. Ooh, I can see Klapow being pretty good. But uh, that... I think is going to take a back seat to the synth pop band that is the Life Model Decoys. Okay, Life Model Decoys is a pretty good name, too. What kind of music do these bands play? Oh, it's like probably 80s sounding, heavy on synthesizers kind of music. I can see that. Kind of like like Devo-esque, maybe a little bit. Yeah, but probably less humorous. Okay, less cerebral. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, I can see myself listening to the Life Model Decoys. I think my preference is going to be the Million Dollar Cowboys. What? Where did I don't? How did I miss that? Where is this? It is one of the military guys who is speaking in front of the. I don't really know what to call them. The Inquest Board, the Tribunal, the whatever. When he is oh, describing yeah. the encounter with the Hulk, mm-hmm. it's not that idiot Perkins. I hope. Oh, we'll get to him. <laughs> Okay, the guy who's talking is named Colonel Lear, and he says, We felt sure we would succeed where Ross's million-dollar cowboys had always failed. Damn, that is a good one. Yeah, I gotta say, the million-dollar cowboys, I think, is a really good band name. I can see that being, like, an eclectic group. They're probably kind of new wave, but they play some traditional music. I'm honestly mostly just picturing Buckaroo Banzai's band. Mm. Like, maybe they all dress like... Jeff Goldblum from Buckaroo Bonsai. But yeah, I think the Million Dollar Cowboys, I don't know that it's a better name than Polychromatic Rainbow of Descent, but I think I would like their music better. Yeah, harder to abbreviate PRD. Hey man, did you go check out PRD at the Laser Dome? Yeah, but I mean, they have a shorter name, so you don't need to abbreviate it. Just like the Million Dollar Cowboys or General Ross and the Million Dollar Cowboys. I can see that being a thing, too. Like, mm. they got, like, a, a front singer there. The backup band is the Million Dollar Cowboys. Uh-huh. I just think it's a really solid band name. I actually really like it. So what what are your thoughts? Do you want to go with Million Dollar Cowboys? Do you want to go with the Life Model Decoys? Which one do you think is better? I think yours is better because it's, like, I can just imagine, like, Hank Williams 3 keeps trying to, like, do a song with them, and they're like, no, thank you. Oh, totally. Yeah, they are definitely like cowboy punk. Uh-huh. Cool. So, okay, I'll put up the Twitter poll. We'll see who the winner is between Polychromatic Rainbow of Descent and the Million Dollar Cowboys. That'd be a pretty good bill. 
Yeah, I'd, I'd go see it once things open back up and we can see live music again. <laughs> yeah, it'd be an eclectic show, but I think that would there, there's some charm to that. Yeah, it's right after you, you borrow your guest bong, <laughs> go on down <laughs> at the club and check it out. Have a good time. Exactly. Corey, sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue did you find most worthy of note? Well, despite some confusion about which agent was which and all of them being total shits, I was impressed by the Hunter Green suit that I think is maybe Agent Lemon is wearing. It looked a lot of the, actually all the civilian clothing in this issue. I mean, I mean, I guess it's 1980, so like they still hadn't figured out the 70s was. They hadn't transitioned, you know? Mm-hmm. So it all looks really 70s, but he's got a very 70s, like, polyester, like, kind of dark green suit, which was uh, striking. Yeah, it's not bad. As we have discussed, I am not a particular fan of Jack Norris, but I do like his look. It's a very classic look, but it is a trench coat over a tan suit, and I really like that look. I've worn a trench coat before, but I've never actually worn it. I know you're supposed to wear it over a regular suit, mm-hmm. but I've never worn a jacket over a suit jacket. But I always think it looks so sharp when I see people doing it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a good look. Yeah, he, he looks pretty cool. I had him also in my list. There was one, I guess, it's probably, again, a coloration error where it's uh, the, the painter of light at work. But um, mm. on... The very last page on the bottom, in the middle, Norris is after he's escaped or left the uh, tribunal or whatever it is. Mm. Does your copy have him with a a neon green and a neon pink segment of his uh, shirt or his suit jacket? It sure does. And I hadn't caught that before. Man, Thomas Kincaid strikes again. Mm -hmm. Just marking his territory all over this comic book. Really just snuck one by. pissing all over continuity Mm -hmm. i also did like patsy's civilian outfits that she's wearing in buzz's flashbacks in the first one when they are still married she looks very 1950s housewife Mm -hmm. and then in the second one she is wearing a much more modern looking i believe it is pink and green striped mini skirt with a tight yellow top it's a good look and i think it shows her transition to being a more liberated woman in a way that buzz i think objects to Mm -hmm. and in that that previous panel where she's wearing that 50s kind of frilly house dress looking thing he is drawn in kind of a funny way that makes him look really just dumb (laughs) it looks like like if he had a thought bubble it would be like "Mm -hmm." (laughs) you are not wrong it looks like a more golden age drawing style of his face and I I wonder if there is a reference panel for that that Don Perlin was working off of. Mm. Because he he looks weird in that panel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's the, I guess, angriest I've ever seen Patsy drawn. She looks really mad at him in that panel. Yeah, she looks more mad at him in that panel than she does when she claws his face up for imprisoning the Avengers. Mm -hmm. I think maybe by that point she was just over it. I mean, in order to... I feel get that angry at somebody, you have to not have written them off completely. And I think by the time she does that, she's just over the dude. Yep. 
So this category actually had a surprising amount of competition. What did you have as the best sound effect? Oh man, yeah, there was a lot here. So earlier I, I mentioned Perkins, I guess private Perkins. Who's um, <laughs> a military man who's given the unfortunate task of putting, uh, I don't know what you call those things, like the thing that goes on your face that uh, brings oxygen or sleeping gas. Yeah, I, I always want to call it a gas mask, but gas mask is already the name of a thing that has the opposite function. Yeah, yeah. So like a kind of respirator cup thing. And he's supposed to go clamp that on Banner's face so he passes out and then they can drag him by his foot upside down away with a helicopter <laughs> like the army does. It's a great plan. Mm -hmm. But Perkins is super nervous and he's getting yelled at by his sergeant, his colonel, and uh, trips on a rock and falls and wakes Bruce up and Bruce hulks out and it just goes south from there. But the sound of him tripping over a rock and then being surprised goes blunk. <laughs> <laughs> yep. The blunk is such a telling noise. I mean, it sparks a catastrophic chain of events, but it really paints Perkins as a character of ridicule. Like, it makes it a more comedic moment. That it's just like, oh, Perkins. Yeah, it's that whole like series is so slapstick because you just imagine it all happening in quick succession. Blunk, you idiot. Arc! And then Banner's like, what? <laughs> and, huh? It's just one thing after another. I did appreciate that his commanding officer did stick up for Perkins later on, which was nice. The boy was understandably nervous. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Good for him. Although at the time he was like, Perkins, you idiot. Yeah. So yeah, that was really good. We talked about the tell that Thomas Kincaid, painter of light, was working on this issue. The Tom K. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had that. That was pretty good. We've got a Klapow, which I think is pretty fun. Mm -hmm. But I got to give my absolute favorite to the noise that it makes when Valkyrie is chopping down a light grid to push on top of mutant force it makes the noise sweok i i had that one too sw and then the phonetic symbol for an o that makes a j sound <laughs> it's as it's as o with a line through it followed with a k and it's like well i didn't know they could do that for sound effects yeah it's like they they localized it for her nordic background it's called a slashed o in uh danish and norwegian and it makes kind of like a like a ooh sound okay see i was just looking up what it means in phonics like a schwa and in that it, it would normally be followed by a colon and it would make the noise yo mm -hmm. but yeah i love the idea of why wouldn't they mess with sound effects like that i want to see a fucking schwa up in there throw some umlauts on some of those things I think that all Valkyrie sound effects should have umlauts over them. Yeah, well, if this were Swedish, that, that particular character would be an O with a umlaut that makes the same sound as the slashed O in uh, Danish and Norwegian. Cool. Yeah, so she's uh, her chopping noise is making the sound suk. <laughs> <laughs> That's adorable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, brought to you by uh, the Unicode character U plus zero zero F eight. Oh, boy, man. Yeah, Sesame Street must have really different sponsors in Scandinavia. 
Uh, I nerded out on it a little bit from my my background working in uh, localization. Nice. So, yeah, I think we're in agreement. That's the best sound effect. Swook. (laughs) Swook. (laughs) Yeah. What was your pie not made out of steel in this issue? What words did you like best, much like you would enjoy a pie, were it not made out of steel? It's funny you should say that. That's a good segue, because it's actually the dialogue between Val and Patsy on the Swook page, and also what Peepers says, so I'll just read the whole thing. Val is, you know, chopping down this this awning to mess with the, the mutants, and she's saying, Back, knaves! I haven't the time to stay and chastise you as you deserve, but let this be a token of the contempt I feel for all your mercenary ilk. To which uh, Patsy replies, Nick's on the speeches, Val. We've got to scram out of here. <laughs> and Peepers <laughs> has made me my favorite bit, which is, he's, look out, she's going wild. <laughs> oh, Peepers. <laughs> uh, somebody get that kid some grapes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I liked that a lot, too. I think my favorite dialogue comes from the Hulk. And they're both very simple, but I really enjoyed them. One of them is enough hulk is sick of silly men Mm -hmm. and that's just when he's beating up slither and the mutant force and i feel like it really does underline how big a threat mutant force seems like i think we're supposed to feel like they are a legitimate threat but they never seem like anything more than just a bunch of silly men yeah 100 percent. i had that written down as well i also like it when hulk says bah hulk has fought parachute men before and always Hulk has won. Go away, parachute men. I like that, but I like him calling mutant for silly men better. Yeah, good stuff. He was on a roll. So we just talked about Peepers, and he was actually the inspiration for our next segment. Behold or be gone. So I mentioned earlier that when he first appears, Peepers looks a lot to me like a grown-up version of Charlie Brown. Mm -hmm. And that got me thinking about something that I think could be a multi-billion dollar idea for us, Corey. Oh man, that's so many zeros. I know. I'm all ears. That idea is the Peanuts gang get Riverdaled. Do you want a young adult sexy drama Starring the gang from Peanuts. Where do you stand on Riverdaling the Peanuts gang? Hold on, I'm, I'm Googling Riverdale. <laughs> oh. Riverdale is when they did the Archie gang, but they made them sexy, and uh, Archie is having an affair with Miss Grundy. It's like a sexy teen soap opera with Archie and Betty and Veronica and those guys. Oh. So this would be a more grown-up version of the Peanuts gang, having a sexy teen soap opera. Oh, that's too much for me. I can't divorce my childhood experience of the Peanuts from the round-headed, small-bodied goofiness. Yeah. I I can't do it. I can see that being difficult, but I'm curious as to see how it would get pulled off. Like, would they make Snoopy be having, like, post-traumatic stress disorder and that's why he keeps having flashbacks of the red baron would they try to have like on riverdale archie is having an affair with his teacher miss grundy like would they try to have a sexy 
trumpet noise for the teacher's voice in this. <laughs> like, wah, 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 wah. It could be like a saxophone. Like a, oh, like totally. a Baker Street saxophone. That is exactly what it would be. Yeah, instead of the muffled trumpet, it would be... <laughs> what would Pigpen's deal be? I mean, he's still dirty, but, like, now he's dirty. You know what I mean? I Yeah, this is a be gone for me. I'm sorry. Gosh, honestly, when I started talking about it, it was definitely a be gone for me, but... I'm just really curious about it enough to the point that I, I'm as surprised as anyone. I'm I'm giving the Riverdaleification of the Peanuts gang a behold. Oh man, yeah, I, I don't want to yuck anybody's yum, but I don't think this is this is for me. It's a be gone. Fair enough. You got to play Baker Street. Now. <laughs> that part is that's a behold. Just listening to Baker Street is a behold free. Like as a sexy music teacher voice. Okay. Well, maybe the sexy version of the unseen teacher from Charlie Brown can get her own uh, spin-off series. Okay. So it's a, it's a half and half for me. It's a behold a gone. Corey, who did you have as the best defender, and who did you have as the worst offender? Well, given that the field was pretty narrow, I mean, we had Patsy and Val basically doing the majority of things with with the Hulk, you know, trying not to get captured. Kyle has a tiny appearance, mm-hmm. but for me, it, it kind of came down to Patsy and Val, and... I didn't give it to Val. She was a runner-up, but she did not manage to keep Aragorn out of the hospital. <laughs> that is true. Maybe she just wants to fall back into that K-hole? I don't know. Could be. So I gave it to Patsy. She rescued Bruce and uh, did a good job. Yeah, she did some good driving of the fancy hover car that I guess Black Panther gifted her. Mm-hmm. She gets gifted a bunch of high-tech fancy automobiles. Or she just borrows them. Either way. Yeah, I didn't feel like Kyle was okay with her taking his his roadster. (laughs) Yeah, I guess not. But yeah, she did some good driving, she did some good fighting, and she did some great claw grappling hook stuff, Mm -hmm. both in snagging the government vehicle that was following them and in snaking Bruce Banner away from the government towards the end of the issue. So yeah, I also had her as my best for the worst I decided to go off script a little bit and give it to our returning friend, Jack Norris. If Jack Norris is in the issue, he's kind of the default worst, I feel like. He is at least trying to help the defenders, but is completely ineffective in doing it. He does his go-to move of getting knocked out by the enemy again. And mostly, he still thinks highly enough of his abilities that he's like, I'm going to rush back into that building and take down this whole government agency by myself rather than warn the defenders. And that's when he tries to go back into the building and there's no door there. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is funny. We have an accord. I, I had him for pretty much the same set of reasons. My notes say Norris, jerk, wimp, napper. That's right. Yeah, not a big Buzz Baxter fan, as I think has been established. But, uh... 
it did give me a little chuckle when he called uh, Jack Norris a wimp right in front of him. Mm-hmm. And Lobster Claws says, geez, what a jerk. <laughs> yeah, tough to argue with those analyses. Yep. Corey, what was your favorite panel in this issue? Man, this one just keeps coming back in different categories, but I went with Val's Gone Wild. That's, <laughs> that's my favorite. I did have a backup, which was... Oh, that was tricky. Okay, so like nobody likes to see animals get hurt, especially, I guess, Pegasuses, but there's something also comedic about how completely ungraceful it is to see a winged horse fall on his face. And the panel... Well, horses' heads are so big, if they're gonna fall, how do you not hit the face? Those things are like, what, 70-80% face? Well, their butts are way bigger than their heads. Are they? Yes. Horses have menacingly big heads. Way too big heads. That they do. But uh, but yeah, as my runner-up, I had uh, Thomas Kincaid's... What do you call it? Not a shout-out, but like a like an Easter egg. Yeah, the Thomas Kincaid signature, mm-hmm. hidden signature. Yeah, that, that panel was my runner-up, but, but I am going to stick with uh, Val's Gone Wild, where she's kicking butt and, and taking names and making that swoop <laughs> sound. So oddly, I also hate to see animals be injured. I had the panel right before that, not the Tom K, but the Fwoosh. Just something about the way the shot is composed. I think partly I like it better because you don't actually see Aragorn being injured in that one. It's more all of the defenders are blinded by this light. And then there's like a starburst exploding red. And then everyone else is in monochrome. Mm -hmm. It's just a really nicely composed shot of the government agents firing a flare pistol at the defenders and Aragorn rearing up on his hind legs. Dude, that horse is having the worst day. You get shot with a flare and then hit by a car in quick succession. Yeah. Fucking poor Aragorn. But that's not my favorite panel. My favorite panel is that idiot Perkins. (laughs) The look on his face when he says, gosh, Colonel, are you sure it's safe? And the Colonel responds, safer than getting me riled, boy. But the look of terror on his face as he is approaching Bruce Banner to put the little respirator over his face. It's really well drawn and it's really comic. And I love the way it's followed by the blunk. Like when the colonel follows that up with Perkins, you idiot. I feel like it should be spelled out differently. So it's clear that the way that the colonel says it is Perkins, (laughs) you idiot. Yeah. And it's like a slow motion falling scene. It takes place over three different panels. I feel so bad for Perkins, but also I I loved seeing it happen. Yeah, it was very funny. Well, Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? I had the Hulk's rules in this issue being about the importance of diplomacy. And trying words first. You know, take action if necessary, but try words first. Hulk tells those parachute men that he's beaten them before and they should just leave. Mm. They don't listen. Things go sideways. Not necessarily the Hulk's fault. So, good on him for giving fair verbal warning. You know, trying to use Mm -hmm. his words first. 
But then when that failed, doing what needed to be done. I had uh, something that I think is in line with that. Uh, I had the Hulk's rule being set yourself achievable goals based on a frank assessment of your own capabilities. And I think the Hulk demonstrated that when he said, Hulk can still smash you, and follows that up by saying, Hulk will smash you. (laughs) He took stock. He's like, hmm, can the Hulk smash you? Yes, the Hulk can smash you. And then sets a goal for himself. Hulk will smash you. And good for the Hulk. Nice. Is that the panel where he smashes the parachute men or where he smashes a lifter with that weird like double behind the back punch? It's when he smashes the lifter and it makes the noise spoot as he splotches him with his. It looks like he smashes him with his butt diving wombat style. Diving wombat style? Yeah, wombats attack with their butts. Really? Yeah. (laughs) All right. Wombat, your stock has gone up. That's funny. (laughs) Corey, are are you ready for another way that the wombat stock is going to rise? Sure. They poop cubes. What? Yeah. How is that even possible? Nobody knows for sure. Actually, probably scientists do, but I don't. I just know that they poop cubes and they attack with their butts. Wow. I didn't think right angles were like were a biological thing. I I don't know what's going on in a wombat's small intestine. Frankly, I don't want to know, but I know that they poop cubes. That is an amazing animal. I am a big fan. All right. Wombats. And that's the Hulk's rules. (laughs) Well, Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. In the year of our Lord, 1980, and the month of our Lord, September, what Wong doings was Wong doing? Yeah, so, you know, as often comes up in this segment, uh, we're made privy to the many different circles Wong moves in, and a lot of the, I guess, hidden influence on the things that have really shaped our lives over the years. Mm. And uh, this installment is no different. We're going to wind the clock back a couple years to the late 70s when Wong would participate in these roundtable discussions over cocktails with tech industry leaders from companies the likes of the lesser known but very impactful uh, Digital Equipment Corporation, DEC for short, guys from Intel, famous chip baker, and uh, Xerox. And he had this idea of, you know, what if we could have this way to to share information across machines in a a local network, like a local area network. How would we go about that? And so over the years, they were talking and this idea developed. However, throughout the course of these discussions, there began to be some friction about what it would be used for and, you know, Wong really wanting it to be more of this for the greater good thing versus a for-profit thing. And the relationships deteriorated, which Later, in late September uh, 1980, wound up with him after a few too many cocktails, clearing the table with his hand and saying, you guys are all a bunch of dicks, (laughs) and storming (laughs) off. And that led a certain Xerox high-ranking official, this was with members of uh, DEC, Intel, and Xerox when that happened, 
think to himself. And they had actually been collectively working on this paper that was going to essentially report out publicly on a set of specs that they had put together for what became later known as is Ethernet 2, so the standard by which electronic information could be shared across local area networks. And uh, he's like, dicks, bunch of dicks. Wait a minute, <laughs> DEC, Intel, Xerox, dicks. And so Ethernet 2 became known as the DIX framework, DIX, as published in a paper by Xerox on September 30th, 1980. Wow. Yep, bunch of dicks. Calling people a bunch of dicks has yet again led to a leap forward in information technology. Once again. Well, that was one thing that Wong was up to, but it wasn't the only thing that Wong was up to. See, about a year before, Wong had struck up a friendship with the actor Peter O'Toole, probably best known for starring in Lawrence of Arabia, best known by me from starring in High Spirits, alongside Steve Gutenberg, but uh, in 1979, Peter O'Toole was uh, appearing in a little film called Caligula, and uh, Steve had some prurient interest in the filming of this. He was like, oh no, uh, Wong, it would be good if we could get on the set of that film for, you know, historical reasons. Um, <laughs> I think it would be very nice if we could uh, check that out and uh, learn about ancient Rome. And Wong's like, yes, yeah, Steve, that's why you want to be on the set of Caligula. Okay. <laughs> but they went on the set and uh, Wong ended up striking up a friendship with Peter O'Toole. So the following year, in 1980, when Peter O'Toole made his return to the British stage for the first time, he invited Wong to come and view the rehearsals for the play. And Wong was happy to accept. Peter O'Toole was set to play Macbeth in the production at the Old Vic in London. But Wong was not aware of certain superstitions that go along with that play. Specifically, during the rehearsals, or backstage, or whenever it's not on stage, you're not supposed to say the name Macbeth. And that was actually something that Peter O'Toole was pretty strict about. But Wong didn't know that. He showed up and he was like, hey, Pete, you make a great Macbeth. Oof. And that is maybe partly why on September 3rd, during the first performance of Macbeth at the Old Vic, it was critically panned. They thought that Peter O'Toole was just chewing up the scenery. The sword that he was supposed to have a sword fighting scene with got bent and everybody laughed and the, uh, the squibs that they were using for blood were spewing a comical amount of blood, which, again, people laughed at. He and the, the Lady Macbeth walked into a wall at one point. <laughs> yeah, things eventually settled down. I guess later performances went well. It was still not critically well-received. But uh, Peter O'Toole never really talked to Wong again. Uh, he, he blamed him for that. He was very superstitious and... Also, it turns out, kind of a mean drunk. So, really irreparably harmed what had been a burgeoning friendship. I am. Years later, Wong was able to watch High Spirits starring Steve Gutenberg and I think Daryl Hannah, maybe? Beverly D'Angelo was in that. Man, High Spirits had a great cast. Hmm. Young Peter Gallagher, Jennifer Tilly, Peter O'Toole, of course. And I think it was one of Liam Neeson's first roles as well. Man, that's a fun movie. Anyway, 
Years later, Wong watched High Spirits and was like, pretty good, but Peter O'Toole's kind of a dick. And that is what Wong was up to in September of 1980. What a month. Indeed. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Corey. I had a great time talking about this issue with you. You're welcome. Me too. And we'll be back next week to read a new Teen Titans issue and see if there's anything in it that can unseat either Polychromatic Rainbow of Descent or the Million Dollar Cowboys as a band name. I'm excited to see that. Same. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so by reaching us at ttwasteland at gmail.com or via our post office box at Tighten Up the Defense. P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. As this is the future, we're also up on all of our uh, social media whatnotsits. So uh, just type in Tighten Up the Defense, that's T-I-T-A-N, into your Netscape 2.0 browser and see what pops up. One of the things that might pop up is our Twitter account. That's at TTWasteland underscore. And if you show up there, you get to vote as to which is the better band name, Polychromatic Rainbow of Descent or the Million Dollar Cowboys. Who will win? Only you can decide. Or there's other social media stuff. There's, uh, what, uh, we've got a Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lisa runs an Instagram page for us. We're up on Grindr, seacaptainsonly.com. Uh, we've got a Neo Cities page. You know internets and hey if you can't find us there there's another place you can look and that's deep inside your heart we'll be there we've always been there if you find us this week we'll be enjoying a cosmic crisp apple the king of apples Corey, you gotta get one of these apples i'm dying to try it and i would like also to taste it in a uh, baked capacity I just don't think that's where it's going to shine as much, but we'll see. If you would like to contribute to the show monetarily, you can do so at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There is the monthly podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa, called What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show, in which we talk about Steve Gerber's Howard the Duck series from the 70s. A new episode of that either will have just gone up by the time this episode is released or will be going up shortly after this episode is released, depending on my editing schedule for this week. But there's a new one either coming up or that just went up, so you can check that out. There's also a bunch of other bonus material up there. There's a ton of video reviews of classic comic books. I did one recently of a Tommy Tomorrow comic book that was a surprising amount of fun. Uh, and there's a bunch of other ones of those and some extra podcasts that I've done with Corey and some other people that you can check out and have exclusive access to if you donate to us. So that's one reason you can uh, kick us down a couple of bucks. But more importantly, from my perspective, at least, it's just a really nice way for you to let us know that you appreciate the work we do on the show and would like us to be able to continue doing it. So thank you for that. If you would like to contribute to the show non-monetarily, a great way you can do that is to leave us a review in a place that a review can be left. Corey, how do you think they could go about that? 
So you could go to wherever you get your podcasts and click the thing that says review and say oh. five stars. Pretty good. Yeah. Two words. That's all it takes. Mm-hmm. Five stars. Pretty good. Concise to the point. Thank you. Do you ever get in trouble as a New Englander for using the phrase pretty good about something that people think, oh, does that mean not good? Or that like you're being way too faint in your praise? Because to me, pretty good, like that is how I describe something that I really like. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's universal. No, it's not. It's not, especially after a kiss. Oh, have you been reprimanded for that? It did happen once. (laughs) I would be very flattered if I kissed somebody and they said, pretty good. Right? Yeah, no, not universal at all. Just FYI. Good to know. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for listening, guys. And yeah, we'll talk to you again soon. Until then, uh... Wombat. (laughs) And... Thomas Kincaid, stop pissing on stuff. Oh, wait, I guess he's dead. So he has. Uh, Keep up the good work. Okay, bye. Bye. Yeah, that's kind of dark. Yep. Well, Thomas Kincaid, you better stay dead. Oh my god. (laughs) I'll almost certainly edit that out. Pretty good.